Okay, today my guest is Professor Elizabeth Maitland. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Elizabeth as a person. Professor Maitland is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Maitland works at the intersection of strategy, international business, and new institutional economics. She serves on the editorial boards of JIPS, the, the Journal of World Business, and previously was on the Board of Human Relations. In addition to consulting to large multinational companies and small entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial startups, she provides policy advice to Australian and Chinese government departments and authorities. She also served as an economic governance advisor to the Australian Government International Aid Agency, the AID. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Elizabeth, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? When I was really, really little, I think I was like every little girl, and I think I just wanted to be a princess. I like the idea of big dresses and not doing very much. Um, but I think that was very short lived. For a while, I wanted to be a pilot. I had a grandfather who was an Air Force pilot, and I love flight. Um, I love being in planes. I love that idea of being above the world. Uh, but I've also got terrible eyesight, so that was very quickly ruled out as a career. But uh, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, primarily in Australia. Um, so it was up and down Australia. We moved a lot, a lot as children. But I think then I wanted to be a lawyer, which I, I watched too many TV programs of barristers in court, you know, <laughs> defending the innocent and uh, making big speeches. But I think when I got to university and I didn't get into law and I saw how much work my friends in law had to do and all the memorization and the casework, I thought, thank goodness I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I certainly didn't think of becoming an academic. I'm not entirely sure that many people do. When did you decide to get into academia? I, I didn't necessarily decide. I think I stayed is more accurate. I, at the end of my first research degree, so at the end of my, my basic bachelor's and honours degree, I'd gone out to work for a management consultancy company. And this was in the years of uh, business process re-engineering, which was mm -hmm. very dull work of mapping processes <laughs> and working out where the costs were. And I remember one day I was deadly bored by this and I was working with someone who was a... Um, fairly recent MBA and he came in really really excited and he was just happy as anything and that was because he'd found how to cut a cost for that day and he looked at me and he said I found my person to sack <laughs> I was like, oh my god this is someone who might need that job but you know you're about to make their life very very difficult and all you can think of is what an achievement and I just knew at that moment it was, it was the wrong role for me. So I went back to do a PhD. And initially I thought I was going to go into policy or foreign service or something like that. And I never left. Um, <laughs> there are various times where I think, hmm, am I in the right role? But I, I guess once I was into the PhD and I was very, not long after starting off with some teaching roles and then a part-time lectureship, and I guess I just stayed because I enjoyed it so much, the research and the teaching side of it. So that's, I'm not sure it was ever a conscious, conscious decision. It was more a, well, I'm doing a PhD, let's take this part-time lecturing role 
And I just kept going from there. Who was your advisor? My advisor was actually an economic historian who I married. <laughs> Not that unusual in academia. Someone called Stephen Nichols. Um, and he'd been, he, he'd started teaching me when I was in my undergraduate degree. Um, but then I come back and started doing my PhD. And I really did a PhD in new institutional economics, uh, which came many, many famous economic historians like Doug North had been so important to. And its topic was on an international business topic, I guess. And that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of how I, I ended up sort of coming into IB, I guess. Interesting. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting? I don't know if it's interesting. There are two things. Like when, when that question was posed, I was sort of thinking there's nothing interesting about me. Um, no, I'm being, I'm being ridiculously false and honest. One is I like driving fast cars. Um, I find that incredibly fun and relaxing. So I've got a little bit of a petrol head reputation. Um, it's... It comes from sort of a long line of people in the family who like fast cars and like buying cars and driving them. And I think the other thing is I, uh, I learned piano right up until the level where I could teach. And I learned from someone at the Melbourne Conservatorium. So I wasn't at the conservatorium, but I learned from him um, privately. And I've got a sneaking suspicion I was this control plant <laughs> reminded him how good all the others were. But he taught me that, Mac taught me that even incredible brilliance of something comes from practice. And even the best musicians, even the best sports people practice and practice and practice. But he also taught me that there is, and I remember when he thought you were getting really good at something because you went and learned at his house and he had a full grand piano in the room alongside an upright. And for a long time, I only ever was on the upright. And then one day he said, look, why don't you try that on the grand? And I couldn't believe it because it's such a different instrument to play. And then he accompanied me on the upright. And there is that moment in music and anything creative where you kind of transcend the moment. You step out of the time and the space that you're in. And you're just in that moment where you're co-creating something with someone. And it, it's, it's amazing. You, you do sort of enter a totally different level of understanding. And I guess that was one of the first times I'd really understand creating something, creating that, that different moment with something. And you get the same thing, I think, when you're fascinated by ideas, when you're with people who are talking about ideas and all of a sudden someone says something and people move to a different sort of thought process, they're intrigued by it, there are what ifs. And it's very similar to that moment where you're, you're creating music with someone, where you sort of step out of what you know, you step out of that time and space. And I guess that's, that for me has always sort of informed where I've gone in terms of, I was never good enough to be a concert pianist or um, even really a teacher. But that moment of sort of creating something and being curious about where can the music go with that person beyond what's written in front of us. And that, that was really, really powerful and was always stayed with me. That's quite interesting. That's quite interesting. I was listening to a documentary on Horowitz, and he actually is making similar arguments. And, <laughs> <Not his league. laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, about these uh, fast cars, uh, how fast yeah. have you uh, driven so far? What's the fastest? Um, 
I haven't driven. I've been in a car that was driven at 240 kilometers an hour, which was just fantastic. fantastic <laughs> um, okay. Unfortunately, I don't have a license that allows me to drive that fast. So I won't reveal what I've done <laughs> on uh, a street road. But yeah, I'm, I have a car at the moment that has a three liter V6 engine, which sits at the lights and just chugs. Um, I just love that sensation. It's such a nerdy thing. But um, yes. Perfect. Uh, after the recording is over, we'll continue that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> You'll okay. find that what the speed was. <laughs> uh, regrets. Have you got any regrets? Regrets? Um, I think, I mean, we all make mistakes, right? Um, and there are things we do that we wish we hadn't. Um, I think professionally, there are two that come back. There are two things that I always circle back to when I'm thinking about things and when you're ruminating on things. And one is at a point in my career where I wasn't feeling that, that confident about what I was working on and I moved into a different department. And I had collected a huge database on corruption in the US um, mm -hmm. and one that I sort of created myself and I'd had some research support to do. And it was on a topic I was really, really fascinated by, but I was kind of told not officially, no one ever tells you it's officially, they tell you unofficially, that it wasn't a topic that would make it into journals that they wanted me to publish in quickly. Mm. And that it wasn't a good use of my time. And I was at that point in my career where I didn't think, well, I'll just stick with it in the background. I sort of just parked it. And it's still parked, it's still there waiting for me to do something with it, which I will do. But I allowed what I was working on to be influenced by someone saying, no, we that doesn't fit with what the department wants and that doesn't fit with the journals that we want to be publishing in. And I, I sort of gave way to that, that sentiment and doubted myself. And I think I allowed that to feed into then doubting, well, was I making the right choices about my research projects? Was I making the right choices about the career? Um, and I think for younger scholars, that's very easy to do is to sort of allow someone more senior who's probably responding to some short-term metric that someone else has told them to, to lift the game on, um, to move away from a topic that I thought was important and a, a research project that was actually well advanced and I should have just kept going with, not just completely doubted and abandoned and let, let go fallow. So I think, you know, is, is that, do I regret it? Yes, I do. Um, and if I had my time again, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, we all do things. I think the second is, is much more fundamental, and that is working alongside or working for people who have values that don't fit with mine. And more than once, I think I've worked alongside or for someone who treats people in a way that I don't think you should treat people. And even, even though it allowed me to sort of have a role that I'd wanted, um, and to do things in the role that I wanted to do, I think you compromise yourself too, too much. And particularly when it comes to the way that people are valued and the way that people are treated. And you become part of that problem. You become part of the system that's asking for things that maybe you don't agree with. Um, and I think that would be one of my biggest regrets is, is, is wanting the role and not stepping away from it or not knowing that this wasn't, wasn't the right choice either for me or for what I, I wanted to achieve. Is that you can always work on something else, but if you start to compromise what you think and what you believe in or how you want to treat people, 
then you're part of the problem, you're not part of the solution. If that makes mm. Uh, what have you learned from these mistakes? I mean, I don't want to say like, uh, what did you learn from this particular mistake that, that you talked about your regret, but uh, of the mistakes that you made, yeah. uh, you learned something from this. Uh, for example, uh, you got discouraged in the first one and then you learned not to compromise in the second one. Uh, what's the takeaway uh, from? I think we, we're trained to be critical. Right? In academia, we're trained to be critical to look for the flaw in the argument or the method or the research design of the data. And, and that's really important because that's how we start to get towards better understanding of events, phenomenon of human behavior, whatever it is that you're studying. But we then take that into all too often everything else that we do. And we confuse being critical with being clever. And I think it's really, really easy to be judgmental. And I've been judgmental many times, far too judgmental. And it's much harder to look for, okay, so that's not that person's strength or that paper isn't gonna make it into a top tier journal, but it's still got something to say. So how do you find that, that piece within that research that actually is gonna enhance our understanding of something or add to what we know? Mm -hmm. And I think what I've taken from it is that you know, we shouldn't be judgmental. We should be far more open and, and balance the critical of side of the job being critical in, in our roles as researchers, in our roles as teachers, as mentors, and be far more positive and upbeat and supportive. And I, I think that's really hard to do. We get lulled into this belief that being critical is clever. Being smart is finding a flaw in something. And I don't think it is. I think being smart, really smart, creative people find the new, they find the positive in something. And, and that's actually quite hard to do. From your lips to, the, to my reviewer's ears, I'm hoping this will <laughs> make a connection. Uh, my reviewers. <laughs> Uh, you, you're, you're right though, uh, some critiques are quite harsh and unnecessarily harsh. Um, yeah. And thank God for, for good editors. Uh, what are you most passionate about? Um, but yeah, it's an interesting question. I think long-term I've always been passionate about history because I'm, I'm really passionate about understanding why do societies, why do people in societies do what they do? Um, mm. And I think when I was younger, I used to read a lot of books on, on big events that turned into human tragedies um, and wonder why someone or a group of people would single another group of people out based on their ethnicity or their religion or something about them that was different. And always failing to understand why that happens and sort of why as humans we, we don't get on. And I think what I'm passionate about is sort of trying to understand how we can appreciate difference and not lose that difference, but without destroying it. So how do, how do you bring, how do you understand why people do what they do? Because we all will make bad decisions. We'll all do things that might hurt someone else and might, might be less than, than great. Um, but I don't believe that we're sort of always motivated by greed, that we're motivated by power. It's certainly abuses and there are corruption. There is corruption. But I think I'm, I'm sort of passionate about trying to be a bit more equitable. And I guess that's why history has always been an interesting one is, is mm. 
trying to understand how things have happened in the past and will they always be like that? Or are we always repeating? We don't learn. <laughs> We're just sort of variations on a theme. I think short-term, at the moment, I'm sort of passionate about things that are instantly really good <laughs> so I can make a meal and it's different and it tastes good, or it's not. It doesn't take six months or five years <laughs> to get an outcome from. Um, and I guess that's balancing the different, different sides of our lives. Uh, Elizabeth, um, let's talk a little bit uh, about research. Uh, how do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly? Like you're driving your beautiful fast car, it breaks down <laughs> on the sides, uh, you're stranded. Uh, people are asking what you do and why it's important. What do you say to them? I was always taught when I was doing my PhD that you knew you'd finish it when you could do the 150 words summary. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of like that, I guess, what I study is how do people make complex decisions? So how do you make decisions where there is no right answer? And when you've got, you, there's no way you can know when you make the decision that it's going to be the right decision. So it's gonna involve trade-offs. There's an option here, there's an option there. And there's nothing that's, there's no set of information that's gonna tell you ultimately that this is a better decision than this one. Mm. But if you commit to one over the other, it's gonna have big implications for yourself and or for other people involved in that decision or affected by that decision. And then I study that in a couple of contexts. One is companies that make big decisions in terms of the products that they're gonna make, the way that they're gonna make them. So the trade-offs between using environmentally damaging inputs versus less environmentally damaging inputs, the type of people that they're going to employ and how they're gonna train them or not train them because that costs money. So those big decisions, but I also study them in terms of thinking about healthcare. So both your own decisions at the moment I've been doing a lot of work with people on things like vaccine decisions, um, the provision of healthcare and how that, you know, there's always scarce budgets and how that's spread across different groups. Um, and also decisions to engage in corruption. What leads someone to actually abuse power like that? What leads to that decision and at a system level, at a cultural level, at what point does it become so destructive that the society can't get past it, that it's just riven its way through system after system in that society? Um, what are some of the neglected areas or omitted variables in IV research? I would be uh, sort of not pushing my own barrel, I guess, if I didn't say people. I think we've, we have omitted people to a very large extent in IB. Um, and I don't just mean in terms of some of the work that I've been doing on cognition and how, how people reach decisions and gain expertise. I think we've, I mean, unless you buy into the assumption that organisations are very strong form entities and the individual is washed out by the, by the effects of the, the large numbers. We intuitively in our societies think people matter. We look to leaders. We study individuals as great leaders or as great experts or as great professionals in sport and music or whatever it is. So on one level, we sort of society-wide tend to think individuals matter. And yet at IB, we tend to think, well, it doesn't really matter who the CEO is or the, the top management team um, until fairly recently. So I think we need to build back in individuals and that micro foundation of how individuals interact. I think we don't also include emotion um, and that must have an impact both at an individual level 
and increasingly at a society level that that societies will have prevailing I guess emotions a strong word but sort of prevailing views and ideas that will move them towards certain acceptances and towards certain beliefs um I think we we are ignoring a lot of the work I'm working with a cellular biologist for example um some of the work I'm doing is on expertise and learning and how do we attain that and he makes the point that ultimately we're just a series of chemical reactions we're just a bunch of cells that have specialized up into organs and our brain is just one part of that and ultimately when we're learning it is a series of chemical reactions so I think we, we need to understand that learning in context, which IB has an enormous amount to say about. Um, I think the omitted variables beyond that are uh, a lot of technologies and what's happening from that. I think we're, we're behind the ball in thinking about the implications of digital technologies and things like machine learning. So, you know, there is a little bit of work now in management and organization, but if you think about as a human, you're an anticipatory system. You're anticipating the next thing to happen to you or that you need to eat or whatever it is. That's all machine learning is. It's just making predictions and then feeding them into the next round of predictions and the next round of predictions. And at the moment, generally, that's sort of seen as narrowing choice. But in fact, there's no reason why machine learning, and this is some work I'm doing with some um, mathematicians and others, you can actually impose onto those different series of rankings so that you can reveal what's going on in that series of predictions. And in fact, we could be using that as a field to, for example, present managers with much greater choice and understanding of the trade-offs so that there's greater requisite variety in what they're considering rather than less. And so machine learning can inform both our own theories in the way that we model, but also in the way that we study machine learning affecting everything from not just how do you optimize warehouse space, but actually how can it support judgment? How can it support expert decision-making rather than narrowing, narrowing our choice? Uh, is there, can we talk about the process of thinking or the process of uh, creative thinking and the state of idle curiosity? Like, where, where did, How do you come up with these uh, interesting papers, interesting ideas? research topics what is the process that you follow um i think it's random at any one point in time we've always got lots of different sort of ideas and papers and projects on the boil and at different stages of development i've always found that it comes from talking to people both in the field but then outside the field so people who are in in specialties very very different to mine so one of the things I've been sitting in for the last year is a weekly sort of research symposium seminar discussion with you know, as diverse of people as quantum physicists, as cellular biologists, mathematicians, an architect. Um, and they, they look at the world slightly differently to the way we do. And all of a sudden you find out a body of knowledge and a body of learning that you really didn't know very much about, but it intersects with something you're working on. And that, that points you in the direction of literatures that you can either look at, that you can read. Um, always cognizant that you've got to be very careful of how you then combine it with your own disciplinary expertise and what you're working on. Sometimes it's because of interacting with other people in organizations and business, just seeing things. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, how is this uh, evolution in IB, IB research? Um, happening or what do you think about uh, 
culture of IB scholarship uh, evolving over time? It's, I think one of the, the omitted variables for me at the moment that's sort of dropped off the, the study list is political economy and geopolitics. Um, and we live in a world where that's becoming again, a more factionalized world. Um, we're moving towards greater barriers, both, both sort of economic, but also um, social. And when I think about IB, for me, it sort of starts with Heimer. And it starts with Stephen Heimer's you know, seminal thesis saying, I work in neoclassical economics and international trade. And that theory says they shouldn't be multinationals. And yet we look out the window and there's an awful lot of them out there. So what is the theory that explains these entities that violate current state-of-the-art economic theory? And, and came up with the theory of multinational enterprise. And that, that body of work, which really was running parallel to all those developments that were happening coming off coast, but also within economic history and business history, within mm. what ultimately, I guess, becomes behavioral economics, was happening at the same time in a whole bunch of places with people like John Dunning, Alan Ruggerman, um, Jean-Francois Hennart, Mark Casson, Peter Buckley. Theories of the firm that didn't take as the neoclassical paradigm of what a firm is, but wanted to open up that black box. So that was one big rich body of research that I think IB scholars were really contributing to and building with scholars in allied fields. And I think the other one was, of course, the international management side of the equation, which was how do you manage these subsidiary networks? Um, all the work that came in that slightly different body of, of research and was more, I guess, drawing on sociology and more traditional management. Um, and I think those two have come together and then cross-pollinated. So there's been a much greater influence from sociology in what all of us think about in terms of IB theory. Um, so you don't just get it in your institutional economics idea of institutional theory, you also get it from the organizational institutionalism. Mm -hmm. They're not the same. Sometimes people try and make them the same, but they're not. And so I think we've, we've become more rigorous. I think the theories have become richer. Um, we've thought about not just multinational enterprises, but entrepreneurial startups. Um, We've thought about lots of different topics, but I think somewhere along the line, we've lost that political economy side of what we did. And so the, the work of people like Vernon Smith on Sovereignty at Bay, the whole school that Heimann then went into becoming a Marxist economist, but this idea that multinational enterprises can bring knowledge transfer, they can bring multiplier effects, but they can also bring damage. They can, uh, be associated with the loss of cultural consumption patterns, um, poor environmental practices. That is, we still study that, but we've lost our key role in sort of highlighting that. Um, and I think while we've got better and more rigorous in, in, in our analysis and our research methods, I think we've lost that dialogue back out to other disciplines. So we're a field of study, but we've, we've lost a lot of those connections back out to our parent disciplines. Um, and we're almost talking to ourselves too much, if that makes sense. Beautiful. Uh, let's talk a, a bit more about advising and mentoring. And um, what are some of the 
common mistakes that you see junior faculty and tissue students do, uh, things that they do regularly that they shouldn't. And if you uh, see it, um, say like, I wish you didn't do that. What are some of the big mistakes that they are doing? Um, I, they, they do what I did. They doubt themselves. And it's incredibly hard to be confident in yourself when, when you think there are all these really smart people who've gone before you or who are judging your work. And I mean, they all, we all make, I think when we're more, more junior, the mistake of, of reading and, and keep on reading, thinking that next article will have the link between what we're thinking and will solidify our understanding of that set of relationships or that theory that doesn't quite gel in our head. And to some extent, yes, you do need to read, but I think you can read too much. I think the second thing that happens when you're reading too much is that you're then worried that if someone else comes out with a variation of your idea, that all your work is finished. Your research no longer has any value because someone else says, and you say, they go, no, that should be a good thing because it means that someone else has seen that gap and it's never going to be filled by just one person. It's going to be filled by lots of people looking at it from different angles, collecting slightly different data sets. And I think all too often I've had someone panic going, but I've read this article and I've already done it. It's like, well, no, they haven't. <laughs> Step back and take some perspective. Um, and I think the other thing they, they often panic about is thinking they have to collaborate with lots of people and lots of papers and get them out before they've learned the art of scholarship. And so they collaborate with anyone. And sometimes that can be with people who sort of take them for a bit of a ride. And I've, I've had junior faculty come to me saying, look, I'm working with this person. And they've said, I've got to get an R and R before they'll start contributing to the paper. And I said, well, that's not research collaboration. <laughs> that's, that's something else. I don't know what it is. But if you're going to work with something, then both of you need to be working on that paper or that project. It needs to be a collaboration. So it's not the job of a junior person to carry someone else on a research project. It's, it's their job to sort of learn from them to, they often have the bright ideas. They've had time to read in the literature. They've had time to think, which sometimes I think we lose. But it's not their job to get the paper to a point where someone else can then just come in and tidy it up and respond to the referees. Um, mm. And I think that's that can be a mistake. You make yourself vulnerable to being exploited. I mean, related to doubting themselves, uh, how does one grow a thicker skin? <laughs> I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> I think we all wish that. You. You have to um, look at the person giving the criticism. I think it, we get a lot of criticism in academics. We get teaching criticism. You know, students are usually motivated when they've either had a brilliant experience or really something didn't work for them. And we always focus on the bit that didn't work for them. Um, and then we get it with papers. We get it with conference, you know, research, grant reviews, et cetera. And we often get it from people in managers. And it's, it's learning not to take it personally. That's a criticism of your ideas is not a criticism of you as a person. It's that sometimes we haven't worked that idea, that research design, that project correctly. 
or it needs it needs refinement. It needs taking back to the drawing board and pulling apart. And that is the creative process. It's stepping back from, if you like, ownership of it and being willing to say, yeah, um, you've got something valid to say there and accepting the critique of the work. Mm. It's not a critique of you. It's not saying that you're not smart, that you're not clever, that your idea wasn't great. It's saying, but it's not quite there yet. And to do that, you have to, you have to laugh at the process sometimes. You have to laugh at yourself as well. If you take yourself too seriously, I think, and that's a very extreme thing to say, <laughs> but I, you have to have more in your life than just, just working on that paper. There's got to be some balance. You've got to have other outlets um, because otherwise we spend a lot of time in our heads as researchers. And I think the best piece of advice I ever got very late on from someone who worked with me on an executive education program I was running. And she's brilliant. She is, she is one of life's just unbelievably creative, supportive, amazing people. And she talked about the inner critic. We all have an inner critic and we listen to it and it's important to listen to it because it's how we improve. But she said, you've also got to have an inner coach and if all you have in your head is your inner critic, then you're going to find life really, really difficult. Because if you don't believe in yourself and your ideas and your work, then no one else is going to be. And the only way you can enable yourself to take criticism and be positive with it is to have an inner coach that says, okay, so that didn't work, let's try this. But if you've only got the inner critic, then yeah, you're gonna be really, really hard on yourself. So it's finding your inner coach which sounds a little bit new agey, but it's oh, not much, much needed. Thank you. Um, Elizabeth, uh, what is, for the sake of time, what's the question that I should have asked you, but I wouldn't? <laughs> um, I think the question that I would, have, um, I would have wondered about is where are universities going? And they are... <laughs> And of course, I can only talk from the systems that I've been in um, and those I sort of interact with tangentially, particularly in this time and period. But these are these amazing organisations. Universities have been around for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years as crucibles of sort of human knowledge of where we as society start to gain understanding of the world around us, whether it's the physical world around us or the, the social, emotional uh, world around us and they're incredibly valuable if they're independent if they're capable of facilitating debate if they're capable of facilitating difference we should be able to disagree we should be able to argue and have alternative viewpoints um, and I think that's I don't think that's under threat but I think we have to always be vigilant that we know how to debate to disagree, to move ideas forward, and to not always sort of say, this is the one way of doing it. And it's, I think we're under pressure from things like um, a lot of learning may ultimately done through all the information technology platform type companies that can create lots of digital content that can do it a lot better than we can within universities. Um, and that there will be sort of very different educational paths for people, not just traditional three, four year degrees um, 
coming back for a master's or coming back for a PhD. But that as universities, we still have that incredibly important role to play as being independent knowledge creators, facilitators within society. And I think mm. that's, that to me is, I think we in universities need to be quite careful that we protect that and we facilitate it. Um, and you know, in IB, we, we've got this amazing ability to be a laboratory for research. And I was talking about where the sort of economic side of it came from and the idea of, of bounded rationality rather than perfect rationality. So this is Herb Simon's point. And the, the idea he's talked about that's always resonated with me is this idea of a pair of scissors with two blades. One is human cognition, the rationality part. But the second part is too often ignored in, in behavioral studies. And that is context. We, we think we act, we make decisions in context. And IB at the end of the day has this amazing laboratory of different contexts in which to study decision-making behavior. And I guess that's, that's where I'd love to see the field returning is sort of really taking advantage of being this incredibly rich laboratory for ideas about how do we understand the organizations that create the products we consume, the, the jobs that we hold, the way that we live our lives. When I, was when I was listening to you, I just uh, remembered a couple of things Bertrand Jussel said, and this is very much in line with uh, your way of thinking. I should go back and read them again. Uh, this was interesting. This was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, for your time. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with you. Thanks, Elizabeth. That's great.